Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu. The list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. Even alone at Christmas, there's a magic that's undeniable that just sort of appears even as you're lonely. There's a drama to being alone where instead of just being a depressed guy sitting farting on the couch, you become a cinematic guy on the couch scratching his nuts and being, you know, you know what I mean? Because it's Christmas and you're part of a story now. It's just inherently cinematic to me. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. Joining us today for a very special festive edition of Script Apart is none other than Shane Black. As the writer of movies like Lethal Weapon, The Nice Guys, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and of course Iron Man 3, Shane is a true screenwriting auteur, known for pulse-racing action, quippy dialogue, and genre-skewing surprises. At the heart of his stories are usually two odd couple characters who must overcome their differences to solve a problem or often a police case. And did I mention all of this is typically happening against a Christmassy backdrop? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Shane's 2005 festive film noir, ticked all of the above boxes and plenty more. As Christmas movies go, it's a total cult classic, renowned for its sharp satire and meta-commentary on Tinseltown past and present. Robert Downey Jr. plays Harry, a petty crook who lands a Hollywood screen test after accidentally crashing an acting audition while running from cops after a botched toy store burglary. Finding himself adrift in LA over the holiday season, a string of strange events sees him reunite with his old childhood crush, Harmony, played by Michelle Monaghan, and entangled in a murder mystery with a gay private investigator named Perry, played by Val Kilmer. Shane wrote the movie after a nine-year layover between projects. His previous film, the spy thriller The Long Kiss Goodnight, has a huge cult following now but struggled at the box office on release, sparking a period of soul-searching for the screenwriter. In the conversation you're about to hear, Shane explains how Kiss Kiss Bang Bang revitalized his love for storytelling. We discuss what it is about Christmas that he can't stop himself coming back to as a storyteller, to what degree this movie provided a comic template for Iron Man and the MCU, and how his first draft of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was actually a rom-com with intoxicating characters but no real plot. That is, until he planted a murder at the center of it. Before we dive in, a quick reminder that if you like what we do on Script Apart, we recently launched a Patreon page, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can support the show and help us continue to grow. 
If you ask me, a subscription would be a pretty great Christmas present for the film lover or emerging screenwriter in your life. Just throwing that out there. Anyways, that's the promotional stuff out of the way. Let's dive into my conversation with the amazing Shane Black. Thanks as ever to our Patreon supporters. That includes Anita Mutter and Fernando Leal. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Hey Shane, so great to have you with us. How are you doing today? Hmm. Wonderful. Um, cannot complain. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Um, hope everyone's having a great, <laughs> a great finish to an otherwise uh, iffy year. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely hear you on that front. Um, I'll, I'll level with you though, Shane. Like as someone whose screenplays so often feature Christmas as a backdrop. I don't know. I was half expecting to see tinsel behind you, the house all decorated. Um, are you a Christmas guy in that regard? I, you know, that's probably next week. Um, I usually hit it about the, this is still the first week, second week in December. I put everything up until the second week in uh, January. So you yeah, come on by. You'll, I have two Christmas trees I put up. Um, I got a new puppy, so that's not going to work. <laughs> um, they're both coming down. We'll, we'll figure it out. Christmas is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's different in LA and you got to really look for it. So to the extent that, you know, I, I remember this year to play Christmas music, to not, not just let it get by. Cause one of my father's memories as a kid was at some point out of the blue, you just started hearing Christmas. My mother would play it or you'd hear it on the loudspeaker at the Woolworth. And so for this time, it's so it doesn't just sneak by and escape me. I have to consciously put on Christmas tunes. And if you ever any point in this proceeding, you wish to put on some background music, please feel free. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, as we're on the topic, we should address the the tinsel covered elephant in the room, which is your Chris, your films are often set at Christmas or intersect with it in some way. There's a quote that you gave a couple of years ago, which I love, about how Christmas represents a little stutter in the march of days, a hush in which we have a chance to assess and retrospect our lives. And you talked about how cinematically that becomes such an interesting counterpoint to whatever plot you're working with. Can you unpack that for our listeners a little bit further about what it is about this time of year that, that's always been kind of a creative spark for you? I think it has a, it's weird because at the same time, it brings us all together and it's sort of a backdrop against which everything else is set. And we all sort of share this, um, the zeitgeist of, of being all in it together for one big moment, one big pause in which we're all a participant. At the same time, I think Christmas has, it can make us very lonely and isolate us from the people around us who seem to be somehow living lives that we don't, that they, they have the clue on how to do it that we don't. Um, there's a feeling of being outside the window, looking in, you know, seeing the big feast. And then what, well, why can't, what happened that these people just inherently know how to live a life, how to have that brightly lit Christmas room with full of family and laughter. And I'm still out in the, in the goddamn snow. <laughs> and uh, so, it, but at the same time, it, it gives you, that wonderful, uh, magical time, it takes it away and makes you lonely, especially, you know, the, the alcoholics in the group. I was, a I'm a recovering alcoholic and I would tend to be very lonely and just drink and look at other people at Christmas and think, boy, they sure know how to do it. But then it also gives it back because even alone at Christmas, there's a magic that is undeniable that just sort of appears even as you're lonely, even as you're alone, there's a drama to being alone that is sort of, um, magnified at Christmas, I think. 
where instead of just being a depressed guy sitting farting on the couch, you become <laughs> a cinematic guy on the couch, scratching his nuts and being, you know, you know what I mean? Because it's Christmas and you're part of a story now. It's part of a Christmas tale about that lonely guy who couldn't quite get it, who couldn't quite live up to the other people's standards. Um, and, you know, it's just it's also full of little portents and symbols. You walk down the street, you can't help but notice in the air the crispness, the little bits of Christmas the decorations, this and that, or snatches of music heard here and there. Um, it's just inherently cinematic to me. Uh, and it, it's also a heightened time. And to me, movie, movies are heightened. You know, when you sit down to write a movie, your life might not be that great. You might be a boring person when you sit down to write a movie, but when you write the movie, you have to become an interesting person. <laughs> you have to somehow find within you the ability to make this a slice that's somehow more compelling and watchable than just your ordinary life. And Christmas offers that to me because it's a time to sort of step up and find magic, hidden magic, you know, uh, magic that's on the verge of twinkling out, but is still nascent and, and uh, can be revived with just a, one warm breath. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, if you, pre I, I, you, you hear my voice being sort of ironic. If you just said this, it sounds like the most pretentious bullshit ever. If it's <laughs> word word recounted, you know, but, but I, I do believe in that stuff. I think it's wonderful. Yeah, man, me too. And I mean, doing that same thing that, that you described at the beginning of like actively chasing the feeling of Christmas, I decided to stick on the um, Charlie Brown Christmas thing, which I haven't seen since I was a kid. That exact thing you described of like, you know, the depressive nature of Christmas sometimes of like the expectation to feel something and then not being able to feel it like that's that's baked into that. And that's like one of the kind of, you know, totem Christmas stories at this point. Right. Oh, yes. It's one of the the old saws, in fact, is um, usually they're they're tied into having a happy ending. Someone finds that little bit of magic that they couldn't see before. And it manages to wake up something inside them. Um, yeah, hopefully that will occur between now and January for me. Uh, we'll see. Fingers crossed, man. Well, uh, one thing I love about the, the function of Christmas in your movies is you're not someone who I would characterize as an overly sentimental writer at all. But the Christmas by its very nature is sentimental. And it creates this kind of interesting push-pull in your movies. Like those two truths kind of bump up against each other in interesting ways. Was it writing Lethal Weapon that you discovered that tension or had, had you been using Christmas as a creative jumping off point for a while before that on projects that maybe hadn't been made? No, I, had, I hadn't, but I'd been noticing it. In, uh, the first time I saw Christmas used in the context of, uh, of like a Cold War type thriller was really interesting. Uh, it was called Three Days of the Condor. It's a Sydney Pollock yeah. film. Um, and I thought, holy shit, this is a movie about a guy whose entire, you know, team has just been murdered. and He's on the run in New York City from, you know, devastating shadowy forces. But it's set against this wonderfully, you know, it, it's set against Christmas all over the place. And it was a great, um, the, the ending of the movie is Christmas Carol is singing. And they suddenly hit a very sort of harsh, discordant note and it freeze frames on them. Um, and you realize that even though he solved this thing, it's never going to see print. And even though he's got the proof, he's never going to be able to use it. And he's probably going to die. 
And, uh, but in the midst of this, is this this sort of bl- uh, blather of Christmas all around, you know, that it goes from being sentimental to just being this sort of very discordant background. I love that movie. Um, I'm a little more sentimental about Christmas um, in the sense that I think you see a lot of a lot of curmudgeons, a lot of people in films, what they are, they're unsentimental people who are waiting to be proven wrong. They're desperately wishing someone would come along and convince them that the things they're saying so emphatically, which they hold to be so true, are just not. I'm, I'm just I'm always waiting for someone who is more persuasive than me to tell me I'm full of shit and really convince me that my negative input or expectation is not the one. Um, And I always get disappointed when I convince people otherwise. When I talk and they go, yo, you're right, things suck. I go, no, I didn't want you to say that. No, I want you to come back and tell me it doesn't suck and make me believe it. But specifically in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, narratively, I suppose you could have made this movie without that festive backdrop. But there's something about its Christmas setting that kind of elevates the material. So... I'm curious to know how you think, Shane, this movie and the journey its characters go on, uh, you know, what it would have been lacking without that seasonal setting. Um, oh, my dog just got a pine cone. I <laughs> try not to let her do that. Um, I, I think uh, I think it has to do with, once again, we talked about, this is a, a, a movie about a guy who comes to Los Angeles, not for long, probably in the course of the movie spends a week in Los Angeles and he's never been there. And, uh, it changes everything in his life. It's the most heightened, you know, uh, operatic moments of his life. And so it just seemed like instead of just coming into LA in a sort of a normal everyday, you know, uh, midsummer, I'm sorry, just put, Hey, put, okay, never mind. You can have that. Um, there's a, there's a sense of, of, of coming at a magical time that's been carved out for him during which it's going to be a forge. He's going to be a crucible in which he's going to be tested and, uh, being tested against the phony Christmas backdrop of LA against that sort of sterile, uh, version of, you know, platitudes and, uh, you know, uh, parties, which, on the one hand, are supposed to represent the joy of Christmas, but really they're just, you know, these ridiculous L.A. blowouts. I mean, I, I used to have parties at my house, so it was fun to do Christmas parties, but they were actually just kind of disgusting and and, and annoying to look at, you know. Uh, Christmas parties where they have, like, ridiculous sculptures of naked, you know, Virgin Marys with pierced nipples and things like that. We, we, we were trying to be... Uh, tasteful in a way, but at the same time, some of the ideas they came up with for these crazy Christmas parties were, were, you know, off the chart. And I love the idea of doing LA's version of a postmodern Christmas. And it's also a noir film and it has to be cold. It has to be dark and it has to be against a backdrop of, of abandoned hope in a way. Um, people being, being murdered at Christmas, losing people at Christmas, uh, being stranded in the midst of an island in Los Angeles uh, that doesn't resemble your home in any way and having people tell you it's the magical time of Christmas when in fact it's just this sort of stranded little, uh, you know, tawdry uh, 
place that you have to then turn into magic. He's a magician and as a child. And in the movie, he has a chance to use his own magic to transform reality in a way. He is someone who doesn't have a lot of savvy, doesn't have a lot of smarts in some ways, but he's, what he does have is sincerity and uh, doggedness. And he once really wanted to be a magician. And so by the end of this, when for five seconds, he conjures the reality that he is Johnny Gossamer, the famous detective, and he just pulls off this ridiculous series of (laughs) hard boiled moves with almost effortless ease. Well, that kind of miracle seems very appropriate for a Christmas time. It's he actually conjures his own Christmas miracle in which what his life has been building to is he pulls off a magic trick then and reclaims everything he lost in life. He finishes something for the first time and in so doing reclaims his lost love and becomes uh, the hero that was only in books before. But then it goes away because the minute you, the minute you see that he's been shot, but he says, oh, you, the book, it's like magic. The book stopped the bullet. Well, no, there's a hole all the way through the book. It didn't stop the bullet. So now we're back in reality again. His miracle's over. The magic he managed to conjure has now dissipated. We're back to the LA. So this guy, Harry, who was he to you, Shane? And um, yeah, did, did whatever headspace you're in around this period kind of factor into the creation of the character at all? Because, well, he's an outsider navigating Hollywood when we find him at the start of this film. He's submerged in this feeling of drift. Um, yeah. Was it, was any of that consciously or subconsciously informed by the wilderness that you've described finding yourself in after the long kiss goodnight? It's interesting because I think, I don't think I land on any one character in any given project as having been representative of myself. Um, I think that we, we, we stage little arguments among the various aspects of our brain. For instance, if there's a character in a story that is young and impetuous and doesn't understand the word no and just wants to always barge straight ahead. And there's another older wizened character who's like, well, let's think about this first. Well, that's really two parts of your own brain arguing. You know, it's there's a part of you that is very cautious, another part that's very impetuous. And they're they're arguing amongst themselves as to which one will have ascendancy. So to me, it's just arguments among your, it, every character is a part of you. If there's a gay character, then there obviously there's a part of me that's somehow drawn to the idea of, of being gay or understanding gay emotion or whatever. That, um, and then there's, there's the straight character. So there's a, a gay and a straight part of me arguing, right? Um, and uh, it's just, and they're not arguing by the way, they're, they're, the argument is for the sake of the viewer. It's to set up two people that, you know, have big differences and then reconcile them and become friends. So I choose all the disparate parts of my mind that at first blush are sort of arguing with each other and say, hey, guys, guys, peace. Let's let's all come together. And that's sort of the nature, I think, of buddy films is you take these two attitudes, both of which are equally represented, let's say, in your mind, and you just find ways to reconcile them and make them find peace and, and be buddies with each other. That's a real recurring part of your storytelling, like that buddy movie dynamic. Um, so yeah, I guess I should ask, what made Perry in this film the perfect complement to Harry, the way that like Murtaugh, for example, is to Riggs in Lethal Weapon? Right, right, right. Well, you know, there was, um, there was a period where people would take sort of odd opposing characters. Uh, if, and they would be, the formation of the buddy movie was based on... <clears throat> There was the health nut 
and a slob. You know, there was the odd couple, literally. Um, yeah. You know, in 48 hours, you had the black street kid and the white, you know, semi-racist detective. And then they came together. So this one was sort of a well-meaning, uh, but unintentional homophobe who's just been raised back East without, you know, and the LA suave put together private eye who happens to be gay. I also love the idea because uh, I hadn't really seen it, that the guy who kicks down the door and blasts people and says, everybody out, this is the gay one. Mm. There are gay characters in movies, but how many times are they the ones leading with kicking down the door and saving people or beating people up, you know? And so I wanted to do that. And I also, you know, part of coming to LA to me was um, I went to UCLA. I had no idea what, um, I, I had never met, to my knowledge, a gay person. I'm sure I had, but I didn't mm. know. And so I would meet my professor who was, you know, one of the uh, very, very strong LGBTQ advocate. And, you know, and, but I just thought, what a jolly fella, you know, he's laughing a lot. I know, but, but no, he was, he was a very, very big in the gay community. And he showed me that there's nothing to be afraid of, that we can all live in harmony there. And, uh, and so I guess if anything, it's here's a guy coming from back east who is ad, what I would call an inadvertent homophobe. He's just never been exp exposed to it. It's not that he wants to hate gay people. He just doesn't understand. He kind of his first reaction, is like, you know, and by the end, he's like pointing out guys for him to pick up, saying, what about that one over there? You think? And, and it's just like two people talking again. That's the, the miracle for me. The magic is, is in de-escalation. It's taking people who don't understand each other and by the end, having them just maybe they're, they're not like, it's not like they become each other, but they understand each other enough that they can talk like old friends. Um, there's a famous story about John Cassavetes. who's walking, I believe with uh, Peter Falk and maybe Ben Gazar in the central park. And a guy came up to them with a gun said, all right, give me your money. And he says, well, whoa, 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 guy, guy, we're just, we're just going to get some ice cream here. We're, you know, uh, we, I'm, I don't have any money. I just have a couple bucks. He goes, no, no, I seen you on TV. You're, you're, you're an actor. You got money. And finally, Cassavetes apparently said, look, you look, you, you must've had a hell of a day. What, what brings you out here with a gun like this, man? I mean, you fascinate me. Your interest, what, what kind of day did you just have? I'm sorry you had a bad day. Hey, listen, we're going to go get some ice cream. You want to go get some ice cream with us? And the guy puts his gun away and end up going off and having ice cream together. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you know, if you see a guy with a gun pointing at you, you say, hey, let's go watch a movie. And it's not going to work. But what it does suggest <laughs> is that Cassavetes as an actor was naturally curious about someone he didn't understand. And so it was curiosity trumped fear. And that's what's interesting to me. The, the opposite of fear might actually be curiosity. And so if I'm in a uh, world coming into LA from back East in Pittsburgh, where I was born and meeting types of people that I've never seen before, curiosity comes to Trump fear. And then we can just talk like friends. Even if the guy had a gun on him, by the end of the day, they were talking like friends. And that to me, that's my God. That's my sweet spot is when things inexplicably take that turn. And things that shouldn't go together, people who don't understand each other inexplicably become friends. Um, so I know that Bodies Are Where You Find Them by Brett Halliday was a massive touchstone for you during the writing of this film. 
it's credited as, you know, based on that, that novel. Although obviously you added a huge amount of your own ingredients to the recipe. What can you tell me about that process and, and where that story ends and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang begins? Um, well, I, I was reading, I started out writing what I thought was going to be a character romance out of broadcast news or something like that. I was big into Jim Brooks, who was a mentor of mine. Very lovely man. And halfway through, I just started hitting blocks and I I wasn't interested or was getting confused and twisted and very dark. And Brooks even said, man, I I don't know where you're going with this. I I, it was started out and you had good ideas. And now I'm just you're kind of losing me. And I was, you know, heartbroken. Here's my mentor telling me that I sat down and you have one of those moments where. It's like finding out, you know, that the world's going to end and it doesn't end. And you, so you wander the field in total cognitive dissonance for like two days. You go, oh, shit, oh, shit. You know, everything I know is wrong. <laughs> and then bing, a new idea happens. Aha. It wasn't December. It was actually August 1st. You know, and, and in this case, the thing that kept me going was, aha, I forgot to put a murder in it. I just forgot. So put a detective in it. And then then it all came to pieces. It came to pieces. It came together. Um, and that was, that was great because then what you had was the leftover bits from what was structured initially as a romantic comedy, coupled with this new framework of the gay detective and the murder and being drawn into the detective lessons. And I was very happy with that. Um, but your question was, <laughs> no, that's interesting. I'll, I'll pick you up on something you just said there. So what was the, what was the romantic comedy that you originally had before you retooled it? I just was, I did a story about a guy who was a thief in New York who actually deadly, you know, was, was like bleeding out or passing out in an audition in New York where he's hiding from the cops and they end up thinking it's acting and send him to LA. That was the premise. And he gets involved. And there's the was the movie business and kind of once upon a time in Hollywood framework, but with no plot that I could find. I knew that I wanted him to rediscover his high school romance with a girl who moved out and become an actress there. But and I wanted it to be melancholy. I wanted it to be about how they never really got what they set out to, and and also be about how the next chapter can be the best one in the sense that all the things that led them to think their lives were over, the things that positioned them for that next little magic trick that they never knew was coming. That was the last bit of unexpected magic, which surpasses all the other things they thought they wanted in life that they thought they'd missed out on. Um, Well, it just didn't work. So the murder gave it all the melancholy I needed. Bodies are where you find them. So I didn't have a murder plot. And all the characters, I had all the themes and what I wanted to get to, but I needed a a clue. I needed a couple clues. And uh, I've been reading these books, these Mike Shane mysteries by Brett Halliday. It's, uh, so I scooped up about a dozen of them, and I would I just started reading. I would read uh, two books every three days, and I did that for a while. And, I, and as I went through them, I, I found a couple of clues I liked. And I said, OK, I can, I can work with this. I can make this. Not, and by the way, people say, I don't know. I even read the book. and I don't even know what you took from it. And that's fine. You know, that's fine. I'm happy to have a credit that says that 
gives me co-credit with one of my favorite private eye authors from the 1940s. I'm happy to have that be on the screen, <laughs> regardless of how much of the actual book he wrote made it into the finished movie. So it got me going, it got me writing, and it got the movie made. And I'm still a huge fan of, uh, Brett Halliday is actually a guy named Davis Dresser, uh, who wrote, wrote a lot. Uh, he was married, I believe, to a mystery writer named Helen McCloy, who also had a, uh, a great mystery, a great detective character. Uh, yeah, I, has, I, I never managed to actually track down the book, but yeah, I'd certainly read the synopsis and I was trying to work out how, how the two projects intersected. It had to do with the sanitarium and with the daughter switch, which, which no one remembers anyway. They, it's the confusing part of the movie. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a guy who switches daughters and stashes one in the sanitarium uh, so he can trot the other one out to forgive him so that, you know, after she's dead, he can have all the money or whatever it is. Uh, yes. Okay. Um, but, you know, it, it, once again, it's not the most important part. You can make a movie with that plot that's not good. But I needed it anyway. I needed something. And so I was able to option that book from a wonderful, uh, wonderful family members of, of uh, dressers. That's interesting. Um, so Shane, I think I read once around this era, you had a shoebox that was, that was really key to your process. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you had this, uh, you'd keep writing little scene fragments and bits of dialogue down as they kind of came to you across maybe six months or so. Then eventually, whenever this shoebox was full, you'd pour the contents on the floor and yeah, you'd just kind of look through what was there and see if anything leapt out of you, kind of look for connecting threads between these various pieces of paper that could maybe become a story, right? So yeah, what can you tell me about the shoebox contents that led to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? And uh, yeah, is it still a habit you keep today? Usually it's bits of dialogue or little bits of theme, like even as... Uh like I was just thinking about yesterday, I was just thinking about what I was talking about today, which is uh, the opposite of fear is curiosity. Um, you can't be curious and afraid at the same time. And I, I remember I wrote that down, that went in the shoebox. Um, it'll come out somewhere. Uh, bits of, bits of, you know, exchanges, little, little bits that are, if you read them, you go, that is so small. That's like four lines of dialogue. I said, no, I've had it for 10 years. It's four lines of dialogue and it will go in a script someday. And it'll be, it'll be four lines that you'll see. That's not even that, that's not even that great a joke, but it will, it will have been 14 years and it's now it's in the script. So something about it, maybe write it down. So God damn it, it's going in. Um, or, you know, thematic stuff, especially because so much of what's wrong, I think with the movies in, in genre is if you say to the, you say, okay, I understand the plot. And there's Sanders, there's action and their car goes out the window and then flies across the alley into the other car. But what's the movie about, you know? And often I think the filmmaker would be sort of hard pressed to tell you what, I don't know, it's what's well, about, they steal a diamond. No, no, I don't, I know that, but what's it about? You know, is it about the death of innocence? Is it about reviving your spirit? Is it about what it takes to get up after you've been knocked down? Is it about loneliness? Is it about, you know, um, how ignorance is bliss is what is, what are you trying to say? And so those are the kinds of things I write down is, um, and I think everyone does that they just not all of them put it in the shoebox. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, this is Al just jumping in to tell you about one of our great sponsors this week. We screenplay. 
Making progress on your screenplay can be an incredibly isolating experience. You've completed a draft, but what next? That's where We Screenplay comes in. Not only does We Screenplay have amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, they're also the industry's number one script coverage service. Looking for notes on your short script, TV pilot or feature film? With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback that's tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from folks writing their first script all the way to Oscar winners and longtime producers. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings, hands-on workshops and once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunities that We Screenplay has to offer. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay are here to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. But this movie has always been about, to me anyways, like masculinity, or that's at least a part of it. You know, what that word means and what it means to live out or fail the fantasy of that word. I mean, a a character literally shoots another guy with his penis, essentially, in this film. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I'm curious to know, like, when typically you begin to know what a movie is going to be about thematically? Like, do you go in knowing, having written that down and put it in your shoebox, what this film's going to be about? Or is it something you like? you know, you just see emerging in your first draft or whatever, and then it's a case of teasing it out more in your second, your third pass. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of times you just start and there's a, there's a swirl that exists already, I think, and that's sort of tugging and it knows where it wants to go. Um, if you're doing a movie about the ultimate masculine icon who was a detective in a series of crappy books back in the, you know, 1970s and this the plot of your story as in kiss kiss bang bang is it inspired a generation of kids to believe in a certain type of world that may or may not exist and already you're dealing with masculinity and um if you're then adding in the idea of a girl who's afraid of her father who is an evil man who uh, molested her sister well now you're also dealing with images of toxic horrid masculine uh power and weakness at the same time. So every time you deal with a man who is a, who has achieved an iconic status, even in someone's memory, that's 40 feet tall and needs to be deflated. That's then that movie is about masculinity because it's about icons that are 40 feet tall that need to be deflated. And uh, we spend a lot of kiss kiss taking those masculine scenarios and turning them on their heads. So it would normally be a tough guy scene becomes a comedy scene um, you know, and what would normally be, uh, a guy walking away from, you know, a, a murder, you know, kind of reloading his gun and saying, fuck you ends up being a guy crying in the, you know, and, and hugging a giant poodle <laughs> because he's never killed anyone before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like there's that scene where Harry's at the party and discovers that creepy guy looming over Harmony while she's passed out drunk. And well, Harry gives that tough guy speech where he says, walk the fuck away or lets you and me go outside. And then there's that hilariously abrupt cut to him getting the absolute shit kicked out of him. That That's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's about guys who have something that's not 
it, it's and that's where it is me because I am that guy who's been who's challenged people like that, and I'm like praying they don't take me up on it. <laughs> you know, because I want the image of me to be intact as someone who says, "Hey, buddy, why don't you talk to me? Huh? Leave her alone. Talk to me." Huh? But having said that, it's like. Okay. Uh, uh, what if he, what if he actually hits me, you know? So that to me has not really been represented properly in film. But at the same time, there's a doggedness to Harry Lockhart's character in the film, Robert Downey's character, which is he, he makes the challenge anyway. Yeah. Yeah. He's compelled to be mythic, even if he can't fill the footsteps of the myth that's demanded that at that moment. You know, Joseph Campbell has a famous bit, uh, a family that's driving and the father's taking his daughters and his wife on a picnic. And he sees a guy falling off a cliff, like dangling, like about to let go, Just jams on the brakes, stops the car, leaps out, runs down the hill, almost falls and kills himself, hauling this guy up the hill, very nearly dies. And the question is, he just stopped the car for a perfect stranger he'd never met before. And risk leaving his own whole family fatherless. Why would he do that? What's so compelling that he had to rescue this guy and risk dying in front of his family? And the answer was, well, there's something more important than anything, which is this idea of a myth that is unfulfilled, that is waiting. There's a tapestry which we recognize, which forms and sort of hangs there as an incomplete myth, a guy falling. And our brain goes back in time, you know, ancient brain says, I have to fill that myth. I have to be the rescuer because this is not, it's, this won't stand. It's just being sort of hanging there like that unfinished. And so he says, honey, I love you and the kids, but you know what? There's a myth calling to me and I just have to go jump into it, even if it's dangerous. And that's what Harry was about. A guy who has to jump in, even if it's dangerous because he's, he feels the call. And so to me, the whole magician thing, the whole, uh, doggedness in the face of death thing. It's about a coward in many ways who just feels the call and can't resist it. He has to pursue the magic that he suspects is there because, and to go back full circle, because his curiosity has overwhelmed his fear in a way. I'm starting to see why you moved up the magician's uh, flashback in in the, in the edit because in the script it begins with a suicide note being written before us and uh but the author keeps on disappearing and re-emerging with a dictionary to check the spelling of words like persevere which of course is very funny and very dark which sets the, up the film nicely it ticks both those boxes throughout the magician scene is in the script but it's a little bit later on did you kind of realize at some point either kind of during the making or in the edit that Actually, that's what this film is about. And it, that myth of that sort of fantasy of being the magician and getting and, and allowing Harry to fulfill it. That's so important that I need to replace that. Yeah, the suicide note script is sort of a one trick pony. It's a clever little gag, yeah. but it, it's, it's not really um, doesn't matter in terms of the story, what she did before she died or that she was a, you know, uh, picky about, you know, pleasing people and make it make even she's people pleasing up to the end by trying to make sure no one sees how she misspelled something. Did I do it right? Do I do it right? That's, that's fine. If the story were about the dead sister who had committed suicide, but it wasn't. Uh, so 
yeah, this this makes it heat together a little little. Uh, I, I think people tend to get the idea of the movie more than if we'd muddied the beginning. Yeah, we sort of like begin with that scene originally, the suicide note, and then we cut to the Hollywood Hills at night. The camera roams the canyons west, starts high in the night air, dips towards the road, free falling. We end up in this opulent house and it's here that we meet our narrator, Harry. We hear his voiceover and he says, It's hard to believe it was last Christmas that me and Harmony changed the world. We didn't mean to and it didn't last long. A thing like that can't. You describe him as an almost handsome man, dressed a tad shabby, wearing the only tie he owns. I, I'm curious, I mean, Harry, we've, we've touched a little bit on the character, but we haven't talked about Robert, who's so incredible in the role. Did you change much in terms of Harry's character? Once Robert Downey Jr. sort of agreed to the part and you started to see his ability to land a joke, the flippancy that he was capable of, all that sort of stuff. I, I don't think we changed the character. I think what happened was he started to collaborate on finding additional bits mm. for that character because he he identified with it. Um, and we saw that when initially it wasn't like we went to Downey and just said, this is the guy, obviously let's, let's move on and find our other actor. Initially we went to Downey because he was hanging out at silver pictures with his fiance, Susan, who worked there. And we needed someone to read the parts to do a read through. And so we just corralled him for a read through. And I remember looking at Joel Silver, the producer and thinking, why wow, he you know he really brings this thing to life you know when you know <laughs> and then and then you know the other people the studio would be well so who are we going to get to play that part that he's doing so well who who are and he's like well let's <laughs> you know uh, and at the, that time you know Downey was um, coming off some hard times and he wasn't the number one pick for a star of a film but he was just so clearly identifying with the character and then he. He had the ability to start thinking about um, acting, walking around in character and doing things and saying things that went into the script that were added on the day. One of the great things about working with Robert, and uh, I've been accused of doing too much of this, but every once in a while, you know, you're sitting around and you're about to shoot the scene and sometimes you're working with actors and they get very upset if you go, oh, my God, I just had an idea. What if you do this? He goes, dude, I just figured out that I walk in this door and say this line. And I just figured out how to say it. Now you're telling me to switch it up in 20 minutes. <laughs> but with Downey, you go, hey, let's just throw this out and start and just do this other thing. Go, OK, yeah, sure. You know, there's no hesitation to just leap onto a, a different idea or sometimes a better idea or to add a piece of dialogue or something. You know, he doesn't get confused or thrown by it. So that was great. And you also really lean into that film noir trope of narration in this movie. But there's, there's an additional kind of fourth wall breaking and playfulness that kind of builds on that, that film noir tradition. Like, you know, we have Harry saying things like, by now you may wonder how I wound up here. Or maybe not. Maybe you wonder how Silly Putty picks up shit from comic books point is i don't see another goddamn narrator so pipe down um, what did you love about that as a kind of play on film noir tradition well it seemed like we were doing so much playing on tradition anyway right i mean we we would have heroic scenes or tough guy scenes most notably the one where 
he like puts one bullet in the gun and spins the chamber and says, all right, come on, pal. And you expect to hear the click, like click, click as he sort of advances and the guy gets scared. And instead he shoots it with the first bullet. It's just a one in six chance. Whoa, done. And um, so when you're playing with those kinds of tropes, I mean, you, you immediately go to, well, it's a detective movie, but this guy is trying to channel a detective. He's trying to learn how to be a detective literally by taking lessons. And all he knows are this stupid series of books with this male icon, this, this sort of James Bond type. So he is, he's going to try to fill the mythic footsteps, but he can't. So of course that's going to apply to the mythic narration. He's trying to get it right. It's okay, here we go. I know how this works. I'm being a detective and I'm going to do this great narration now, like they all do. And then uh, I, fuck, I fucked it up already, you know, damn it. You know, these, <laughs> and that's, that's what's fun, you know, is there were bits we left out, which I, I liked where he's talking about, you know, we drove downtown past the courthouse with, you know, the palm trees out front, the sun glistening, you know, we pulled into the lot and uh, I remember Perry got out. He said, what the fuck? You, you're seeing it on the screen. What kind of narration is this? You, why not just, I shut up, you watch the movie or else I talk. And, you know, <laughs> and then basically all these things that narration does wrong, we tried to uh, call attention to. Yeah. You know, um, the worst narration is because, I thought about it. You know, John had said this and Cynthia had said this, but it seemed to me that there was no way the money could have changed hands that quickly. But there was also Jonas. So we went <laughs> to see Jonas. We figured we'd ask him what exactly happened to that money. Well, no, now you're a fucking writer. Now you're just narrating, you know, like a, a novelist. You know, there's not. So if you're just going to explain the plot in the narration, then there's no point. So we tried to make fun of it. But that irreverent voiceover, that, that's kind of like an extension of the voice that you've always had on the page, right? Like you've always had a fourth wall breaking playfulness about you, like in your scripts. Like I remember reading your, your lethal weapon screenplay. I'm, I'm going to get the quote wrong, I think, but like you described within the story, a huge mansion as being the type of house I'm going to buy when this movie's a giant hit. It's, it's all in, it's all in who you read. It's all in the playfulness of the, you know, um, I was just reading a Donald Westlake novel. And at the end of one of the chapters, he said something. I, it was late at night, reading the book. And at the end of the paragraph, he said, and so and so blah. And then he went to bed. And you should too. <laughs> and closed the book. I went to bed. You know, it's it, because he had, it, why would he write that? But it just, it's a playfulness. William Goldman had it. Um, Ed McBain, a.k.a. Evan Hunter who wrote the 87th Precinct Cops uh, Procedurals, his books are steeped in this sort of powerful prose that is very uh, wrenching yet self-aware and melancholy yet funny. And it's people with interesting voices that you, if you don't have them in your life, which I unfortunately did, I had you know, people in my life who spoke very well and interestingly, but you can always find your friends in the uh, in books, the authors and their voices. That's how you learn your, you know, if you want to learn to be a stand-up comic too, hang around stand-up comics. Um, I lived with stand-up comics for a while. And one of the guys I lived with went on to be a very successful screenwriter, Roman in Black and named Ed Solomon. And so, Ed Solomon, yeah. Yeah. He was my high school, our college roommate. And I, so I, I lived and breathed stand-up comedy. And there's a way, there's a rhythm and a cadence to it. 
which teaches you that playfulness, which teaches you to tell a story. The best comics don't tell jokes. They tell stories, right? And the stories become jokes. They're funny. Um, I was a kid who was not particularly popular in high school. I had friends, but, you know, uh, I didn't have friends. I, I didn't date. I didn't, I wasn't in any clubs or anything. I was just a loner. What I would do is after class, every day, I'd come home and go up to my room and I'd put on a stand-up comedy album. Um, there weren't that many to buy that at that time. They were on vinyl. And, uh, and I'd buy them all. You know, I'd beg my mother for money to get the new Franklin Ajay album. You know, who, who, no one knows who that is now. But I would listen to stand-up comedy alone in my room. And at the time, I remember thinking, this is really sad that I do this. You know, that I just sit here and listen to funny people by myself. And in retrospect, it's like, well, if I have a life now, it's because I listen to funny people by myself. <laughs> you know, it's uh, stand-up comics will teach you a lot about storytelling. And the voices in the books you read, the people you choose to, you know, cram in your head night after night as you, uh, it's very important. And of course, right next to the comedy in your work, in terms of like your calling cards as a screenwriter, is um is the action like the action beats and well I know this was a, pro a project in which you wanted to prove that you were capable of more than just action having broken through as, as the lethal weapon guy even in this movie that's that's really going out of its way to deliberately signal itself as as not purely an action movie well the, the action beats are still so alive on the page in this film like as Harry's partner gets shot dead in that toy store robbery. We get this scene in which, yeah, it's, it's worth, I think it's just worth for a second zeroing in on, yeah, some of your descriptions here. They're so terse, they're so short, they're so gripping. Exit side yard, comes out, an explosion of glass. Hits, rolls, comes up running as the next shot blows splinters from a tree. A police car comes squalling around the corner. Fuck. Harry flings himself down an alley. The night is alive with sirens. So yeah, is there a... Is there a Shane Black philosophy of action when it comes to writing beats like this? Are, are you writing purely on instinct or, or is there a bit of a rule book that, that you're writing these kind of action beats from? I like, I like the interesting parts of action. I don't like the connectors. So I try not to spend time on things that aren't interesting. Like if a guy runs up some stairs down a hallway and has to choose between two doors and goes inside one and there's a mop there and he closed, it goes inside another and there's a cafeteria, who cares? You know, he runs in the building and he hides is I think what we're trying to get to. And if there was something spectacular about that mop that he finds, then by God, I would put that in the action. But it's just, you know, there used to be a thing. Um, I was told in India when film was, in its infancy, people were very upset with, with cutting that didn't show. You had to see the guy get out of the car, walk up the stairs, all the stairs, <laughs> knock on the door and let it, you know, they didn't, it didn't register early on in film that like Joel Silver would have the car pulled to the curb. You'd see a tire squeal to a stop. Then the door would open in the apartment upstairs, you know, and they would, they would, you know, early filmmakers or film goers, their minds would explode. They'd say, well, I don't understand. How do you, you there's a car and now he's upstairs. So that is our benefit. That is the gift that film language has bequeathed us with after so many years is the ability to get around the connectors and just go to the parts of the action that we want to see, the parts of the subjective, 
the parts that let us into uh, the experience of it. That's the other thing, subjectivity. You know, um, there's, there, Joe Carnahan did something remarkable in a film called The Gray. Uh, there's a plane crash. Well, plane crashes are very expensive and difficult to film, right? They're huge, big deals. He didn't have a lot of money to do with the gray, but he did something incredible. He did a subjective plane crash, all from the point of view of one person. And it's riveting. And you say, oh, my God, that feels like an action scene that's huge. And it costs nothing because he was smart enough to be subjective and to bring us into it. And it's as desperate and, uh, you know, harrowing as that moment was, we feel every harrowing bit of it. But, you know, he didn't cut to a shot of the plane outside crumbling and crashing. It was just, uh, but man, did it come across. So to me, one of the great things about action that you're doing it for low budget is you, you do things like, uh, you know, if there's a car crash, you're in your car, you look up, you see something in the rear of your mirror and all of a sudden, <laughs> your side view mirror disappears and you don't know where it went. Then you look up and there's a car in front and you realize someone just sideswiped you, you know, things like that. You can shorthand and make them subjective. Um, also sometimes it's great to do that and then blow your wad on pulling back and show like the John Woo thing of then, then get the entire room, the entire office and just blow the fuck out of it and have everyone shoot at everybody. And that's fun to do too, because Awkwardness and strangeness is what sells action to me. Most of us haven't been in the middle of a potentially dead, deadly situation where we've had to run through it. And as you're running through a deadly shootout, what are the things you might see? You know, what would stand out? Pretend you're a camera as you run through a shootout. What is your camera focused on? What is popping for you? What are you seeing? And that's sort of the, the essence to me of how to make that thing come alive on the page. And I love our introduction to Harmony, who we kind of meet mid-conversation discussing how, essentially how Santa has enabled a toxic work atmosphere at the North Pole amongst his reindeers. <laughs> like, So we hear her say, yes, racist, I'm serious. Look, the other reindeer laugh at him, they scorn him, then out of the blue, they need him for something. He's good as a fucking foglight or whatever. So tell me how that's any different from, don't talk to Reggie, he's black. Oh wait, he can play basketball, sign him up. Um, so how did you go about building Harmony as a character? Was, and was that conversation, was that something you devised on, on the page or was that something that had been sitting in the shoebox? No, that's, that's, a, that's a shoebox bit. But I do, <laughs> I do like the idea that she, she was very fiery about things that other people just didn't really want to hear or listen to. But she cared desperately. You know, she, she was very convicted in her, her various beliefs and, um, and had this real enthusiasm about her that was genuine. It came from wanting to be an actress. She didn't just want to be an actress of the type that was noticed, but it came down to that in a sense that all she got to be proud of was a commercial where she's, it's just some TNA thing with a giant bear, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, as the backdrop. And, but inside her, there was a fiery feisty part that really had so many things to say that Ultimately, she's afraid she never really would get to say because she'd end up just being that girl from that commercial. And that was that's that's her wonderful self-aware line. I think when she's talking about this, yeah, this girl thinks she could be an actress. She's 33 years old. Fuck it. It's over. You know, fuck you. You know, 33 years old. 
is like, how old are you? You know, 31 or 32, or I guess something like that, where she's just a year away from the person that she just completely condemned. Um, she knows, but you know, and she knows everybody. She knows all the places to go, all the things. She knows how to be an actress. She just can't get the role because she's a pain in the ass. And that's the other thing about her is that throughout the script, you see her being this sort of consistent pain in the ass who someone will fall and hurt them. So, oh, oh you, you okay? No, my arms. Okay, fine. I'll be right back. And like, wait, I just, my arm, you know, that she, she doesn't really listen to the answers to her own questions that she asks. So, but I like that about her. We soon get to the stakeout scene by uh, the, the cabin at Big Bear Lake. And it's at this point that you seem to start to kind of like lean into that trait of film noir, film noir detective movies in which, you know, that there are two seemingly unrelated plot threads that begin to converge. Like the detective starts to observe the connection. Like it's quite, uh, you know, it's quite complicated. So how did you map out all this stuff, like the murder mystery side of the movie? It came together of necessity because I had, this is where the mechanics overcame the, uh, the actual plot. I knew I wanted to do the various elements of noir stuffed into one film that scraped all sides. And part of that was these Chandler titles I used for the subheadings. One was the lady in the lake. So I had to have a car going to lake and there had to be a lady in the car. You know, then there was uh, the little sister. Another Chandler title. Well, okay, so little sister has to figure it. And by adding each of these things, I was able to, uh, that's what the Mike Shane book bought me. I was able to put together a story that had a tr uh, an element from each of those titles until I could put them together and make, us make sense out of it. Now, I would argue, and I did in the editing room often and loudly, that... I had completely overstuffed this and no one's going to understand the plot. And so I, what we realized halfway through is, yeah, it has these elements from these mysteries, but the mystery, if you over explain it is going to become more confusing than if you never explained it. So put it out there, you know, have the characters act like everything makes perfect sense. Like they just figured it out and let the shape of the scene go, oh, okay, uh, oh, it's the same, all right, and the characters seem very excited about it, so I'll just go along. Because if you try to make sense of this thing, it became very quickly obvious that the plot was so complex that we had to hang on to just a very, hang on to the clue, the clue and the fact to go, aha, we just solved it. And just let the audience believe that's the case. <laughs> you know, let the clues uh, talk and, and dictate the story that you wanna see. Because let them lead you to the next scene you want to see. My favorite thing, there's a clue involving the little sister. And it's too complicated to me to even explain to you now. But it leads to uh, Harmony coming to Harry's apartment. And then there's a spider crawling on her. And she yeah. thinks he grabbed her boat. And it's really just a spider. <laughs> and yeah. then he puts it on a corpse. And, and all those things are so much fun. <clears throat> and the, the mystery stuff was just to get to that. Right. So I'm just I'm glad we had a, an armature that was loose enough that we could still do the things we wanted without getting without getting trapped by service of plot. And speaking of things getting cut loose, um, there's not many Christmas movies that feature severed fingers. Um, Shane, you, you spoke earlier about the Russian roulette moment where 
yeah, like and, and the expectations that 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 sequence was designed to defy. I think the scene where Harry's finger gets cut off by Harmony slamming the door on it, that that seems to tick a similar box. Um, as does the moment late on where you think that Harry and Harmony are finally going to share a romantic moment, only for a fight to erupt because Harmony mentions sleeping with Harry's old childhood friend. Uh, so it, it seems to me that you're constantly trying to upend what decades of watching movies have trained your audience to expect. Like, is that a conscious thing for you? Are you actively looking for these windows of surprise when, when you're sat down writing a screenplay? Right. I, I am because um, in any romantic comedy, you know, obviously the template is they almost get together, but you keep them apart. They have a fight or they need each other. But then someone says the wrong thing and says, you know what? You know, I was going to take you out tonight, but I, you know, I'm going back home. And she goes, but, but, and they, she didn't realize she had the thing in her pocket to give him that would have solved everything, but it's too late. And now she's looking at it because he left before she could give it to him. <laughs> they have all these, these devices to keep them apart until the very end. And I thought, okay, but if we're going to do that, let's make the devices odd, you know, like, um, he sleeps with her friend instead of her because he gets drunk. That's, that was to me odd. You know, they have this great romantic buildup to a scene where obviously because he's a screw up and because he's scared, he, he detonates it. He ruins it for himself. <clears throat> so you have the added benefit of a, it's, it's an unexpected moment when he goes for the friend instead of her for no reason. And B it's a psychological moment because you realize, okay, he's just going to ruin this because he can't handle getting this. He can't handle getting what he says he wants here. Um, we tried to make that the case also, but we have to also keep them together long enough. So when he goes to her after he's just slept with her friend, well, obviously, you know, she hates him now, but what could keep them together? Well, the only thing that could let her, let him in the apartment would be if he cut off his finger in the door. Right. Otherwise, there's, what would what would make her open the door and let him in? Nothing else except the fact that she just maimed him. Uh, <laughs> so similarly, just throughout, you know, they're about to get together, make it as romantic as you can. All kinds of insight that you can dredge up. And then one thing comes in and, oh, you slept with you fucked this friend of mine from high school. Ah, We'll never be together now. So. That's just the romantic comedy formula. You just keep them apart and keep them apart until circumstance, magic, sort of beckons them back together. Uh, you know, it's the mystery that's, that, that does it. They would never see each other again, except he finds out some extra thing about the mystery. Mm. Right when he's supposed to go home to New York, he figures out, aha. There's a mystery here to solve. There's the magic is still alive in the sense that there is still a clue that the magician is pursuing here. And as long as there's a clue to the mystery, there will always, and they don't want to be apart. They, they want the mystery to keep them together. It's a, tra a trauma bond. I think they call it where <laughs> yeah. you, yeah, the, you don't really, you don't like the person you're with you. You're angry at them, but you don't want to really let them go either. <laughs> And how about that climax? I mean, we've touched on it, that freeway scene, the moment where the coffin overhanging the freeway, grabbing onto the hand, like it's so fun to watch. Is it, Was that the funnest section for you to write or did that have challenges itself? Um, no, that was very easy to write. 
because you know that that was just all the, the, the that part's easy for me trying to think of gallows humor grotesqueries or um bizarre misplacements you know the fact that he's trying to get this girl all he's trying to steal a coffin because the body in it is the wrong body well that's just a you know that's a caper novel that's an oddball caper novel um, something you'd see in the 50s or 60s and the fact that he grabs onto the arm of the corpse and that the girl, even after she's died is the only one keeping the case alive and saving him <laughs> is, is that's added juice, you know? Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it had to be a precarious setup in a bizarre, insane situation. So that when he solves it, he's just looking at a smoking gun that he just fired going, what the fuck did I just do? You know, it has to be that nutty at the mm. end. And then he can fall down and say, well, okay. Um, like I said, the magic's over the minute he takes out the book and you see the hole through the book, but the magic had to be crazy. And that part was easy. Yeah. And that and the, the really hilarious epilogue sort of doubling down on the sort of, uh, yeah, meta aspects of this movie. It, it's such a fitting end. And, um, yeah, well, well Shane, like we're, we're 16 years removed now from this movie. Like, am I right to assume there must be some sort of a special place in your heart you hold for this film. Um, you've obviously been involved in lots of amazing projects, but you know, it, it sounds like there was a long layover between projects as we discussed earlier before this one, you know, I, I know there was a lot of soul searching for you in that time. What's your sentiment now towards this movie? Like, is there a particular gratitude that you have towards it for helping you um, reconnect with, with the type of storyteller you wanted to be? I, you know, I think it, it was the, the rawest in terms of uh, just throwing paint at the wall and big wet splats, you know, of things that interested me. Um, it was sort of, a, I, you know, I, I, I'm fond of it. I, there was a couple mistakes I'd fix filmically, uh, shots I didn't get or things of this. But if, you know, if I could... Uh, if I could continue to explore things with that level of freshness and enthusiasm that I had, then I, that would be great. Um, I'd like to write, I'd like to do another one like that. I've always lamented uh, that we didn't get the chance to do a sequel to that because uh, it would have been fun. Did you have ideas? Oh yeah, when you just the ideas are endless, you know. <laughs> you just go back to the well. And there's plenty of uh, Mike Shane stories out there, and then you just figure out ways to fuck up their lives again and throw them in a mix where you know, the the happily ever ending uh, is threatened. It didn't happen quite the way they wished, but all good. Um, we've got a question here from one of our Patreon supporters, Shane. So Ted Wilkes would like to know, with your experience selling spec scripts, what advice you have for writers today about making their specs stand out from the crowd? And well, I'm glad that Ted brought this up because I'm, I'm curious too, like especially given how much Hollywood has changed since you were breaking in and how few spec scripts seem to actually get made these days. It's a good question. Um, uh, first, if you're writing spec, uh, 
depends on whether you already have an agent or not, but because the agent will help you. Uh, I would say, first off, have a demanding audience before you try to sell it, to be around a group of friends that, as I had back in the day, were challenging enough that when I gave them something to look at, they would hit me honestly, uh, but you know, compassionately with what needed to be done. And in terms of what needed to be done that makes it saleable, <clears throat> I think it's worth noting that one of the easiest things you could do is if you're reading a script, I thought I had one here, but, and you open it up to the first page and there's a block of text like that. So meet so-and-so, so-and-so, you know, he enters the building on the right and left. This is the city of blah, blah, blah. You will see in the background that this and this and this, and the cars go by and outside the window, a palm tree lazily wafts in the evening breezes. The sun, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on and on and on. And by the end of it, you're like, that was page one. <laughs> this sucks. You know, I'm going to, you know, I, most people take home, let's say you're a development executive, you work for a, a studio or a streamer, you've got seven scripts over the weekend you have to read. It sucks. Um, one of the things you're going to do is you're going to read the first seven, eight pages. And if it's heavy, you're going to chuck it and move to the next one. And you'll probably get no pushback because anyone else who picks it up, you'll just say, oh, it's, it was really uh, overwritten and, and dense. And they'll go, oh, I see that too. First, second, third page, very dense. So here's what you can do is break it up. Um, I know it shouldn't be this way, but unfortunately it fucking is that people don't want to see black space all across the page of print ink. They want to see white space here where there's this side of the page, um, which, which says, so if you're looking at the page staring at you, as you look, you want the right side to look blanker than ink filled. And the writing tends to stay on the other side more because the more it flows, the more it sort of goes down the page as opposed to across, the more your eye can sort of friendly, uh, you comfortably assess the stuff. You'll find yourself on page 10 or 15 before you know it, instead of giving up after two pages. Uh, that also, I would argue that, you know, you don't have to ever be boring. I'm not saying, you know, don't be a comedian. Don't try to fly before you walk. And, you know, uh, every page is a laugh fest, but play, you know, have some fun. Keep yourself awake. If no one else, I used to, people say you put jokes in your script. I don't put jokes in my script to keep myself awake. I'm, I'm bored by connectors. My like, how does he get from here to here? I don't want to put exterior. He gets out of the car and walks into the building. Well, that was fun writing. No, it's not. So you have to figure out ways that you keep yourself entertained and awake and enthused. And part of it is to say that the style of the screenplay's writing is going to be reflective of the style of the movie that emerges from this. And people are going to know it. They're going to read this and say, that's kind of a zany take on something. Well, how do they know? Is it because the events of the screenplay or is it additionally because you were sort of zany in your approach? Uh, once again, read books. I, I got to say, I've, I'm stunned by the number of writers who come to me and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm writing screenplays. Well, what do you like to read? Uh, you know, uh, well, uh, some magazines and a lot of Internet <laughs> articles. Uh, you know, I, I watch YouTube and no, man, 
You got to learn style. You got to learn to entertain. And the way you do that is you read a billion books. So I'm assuming the people I'm talking to don't need a talking to. They probably already know that it's important to read. But so many in Hollywood do not know that. Mm. It's interesting. Like nowadays, it seems that spec scripts, more often than not, they kind of they're writing samples that instead of being made into movies outright, tend to land writers' gigs writing for existing IP. And I kind of wanted to ask like, how you found adapting to that landscape. Obviously, you did Iron Man 3 and you, you sound, it sounds like you enjoyed that experience. Was that kind of like fun enough for you uh, to be okay with franchises and cinematic universes being increasingly the future of cinema over the sort of original stories that you've prior, prioritized in your career? Yeah, it, you can do both. I, I yeah, it was. It also was a miracle of Drew Pierce. You know, was a miracle uh, collaborator. You know, and you know, just every once in a while, you get someone who you can lean on. It's this. It's the Star Trek principle. It's Scotty, right, in the engine room. He goes, I need more speed, Scotty. He says, I can't do it, Captain. He says, Just do it. We need. It. And he goes, Okay, and it's going to get done. Because you can lean on these people. They're not going to fold. They're not going to crumble. You lean on Bones. You lean on Scotty. You lean on Sulu and Chekhov and Uhura. And the reason Drew Pierce was so great is because you just, he got it done. You leaned on him and he never crumbled. And I like to think that when he gave me 40 pages that needed to be 20, that I was a good editor. It could, you know, but I think it was a marvelous time. If you find the right collaborator, the right writer, Kevin Feige, um, someone who's grown up with this stuff, who can quote chapter and verse. You know, I used to listen to these guys at DC or Warner Brothers talking about Justice League saying, you know, we believe in this comic book potential. We think these characters are. I said, dude, you never watched a comic book. You never read one in your life. <laughs> and that's why the early DC movies, you know. Then you listen to Kevin Feige and he's like, well, which arc are you talking about? In 82, are we doing that one or the one where he finds Scarlet Witch in 92? Because they did that for seven issues, but then they skipped ahead. To, and he knows the shit. He's read the shit. Mm. And that was so refreshing. Working with a guy, even butting heads with a guy that had that implicit knowledge of what he was, uh, what he was showcasing was something he could back up. You could lean on them. They were Star Trek characters. They would not fold. They would not crumble. They would deliver. And that is the key. There seems to be a community of Marvel fans who really regard this movie with, with a gratitude because while to them it was almost like a test run for a lot of the things that Robert would be allowed to do in the role of Tony Stark. You know, they can see the ways in which Kiss Kiss Bang Bang informed the energy, informed the comic sensibilities that Robert brought over into, into Tony Stark. What do you say to the suggestion that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I don't know, like helps lay a certain comedic template, I suppose, like not just for Marvel, but for recent Hollywood, you know, you know at large, the sort of wisecracking that exists in this movie, the zippiness of the dialogue, that's now something that we we see not in, not just in the MCU, but because of the MCU's popularity, it, you know it's it's spread to the likes of the Jurassic World franchise. I can see the same traces. Do you see that influence? Is, and, and is it something you take credit for, or you know feel one way or the other about? I don't see it. I I see a movie that 
has a cult status is a midnight movie that thankfully thanks to people like you who you know paid attention have kept alive the sense of uh, advertising it to people who might not have seen it that's all i see i don't see its influence i, I really don't i think it was it's a funny movie that got robert an audition for iron man but to say then that it sort of shaped the Iron Man. No, no. Robert shaped the Iron Man franchise and the sense of humor he brought. If it's similar, it's because he was just right for that role. That was his sense of humor. But I don't feel like I'm in uh, any way influential beyond just having made these interesting movies that end up at, you know, New Beverly or whatever. That's fair enough. Well, Shane, I should probably let you go and look after that adorable puppy of yours. Before I do, though, can I ask what you've got coming up? Like, I I know there was a project with The Rock called Doc Savage that was slated for a while. There's also a new Lethal Weapon movie in development that I heard something about. I don't know if you're involved in that. What can you tell me about, uh, yeah, the projects you've got in the pipeline? I'm working on a couple of things that are not set up. Um, they may be soon. They may not be. I took a break for a number of years, two years at least, um, and dive back into, uh, just figuring out what the next chapter is and who I am. And so in the last year or so, I've just started to come back to these things. Obviously Doc Savage, they didn't want to pay for, um, I had something called the destroyer, which is on a back burner. I think it's time. I think it's time to rediscover something, uh, either go back and resurrect some kind of, uh, forgotten magic present in these books that were so familiar to me and may not be to other people or to, uh, go in my shoebox again and figure out what's, what's important thematically to be what, what's the thing that's near the top saying, Hey, can I get, can I get said right now? Cause I'm near the top, you know, and let's see what happens, but I can't really get specific beyond that. You may read about it. You may not, but stay tuned, I, I guess. And thank you, by the way, for being so lovely and asking so many great questions. <laughs> the pleasure's all mine, Shane. It's been an absolute blast. I love this film. I love coming back to it every Christmas. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on Script Apart. Happy holidays. Thank you. Take care, buddy. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.